Hello, and welcome to Philosophy Mixed, the Texas State Philosophy Department and KTSW's podcast series on philosophy and the nature of things. My name is Kimberly Clay, an executive producer at KTSW 89.9, and I'm joined by Craig Hanks, professor in the Texas State Philosophy Department. We both welcome you to a program that highlights the ongoing philosophy dialogue series, and we're happy to be able to collaborate with Professor Rebecca Farinas, faculty in the philosophy department, and Joanne Carson, who along with Vince Luizzi, developed the dialogue series over 22 years ago, so it's been going on for quite a while. Thanks, Kimberly, and thanks to everybody for inviting me to sit in today. We hope to present multiple perspectives on different contemporary topics. Um, This semester, focusing on three of them to start, um, first, race and identity, the second, body and culture, and the third, free speech and deliberative dialogue. We hope it will be fun and a bit adventurous and challenging. Um, I'd also like to invite um, everybody to um, visit the Philosophy Dialogue series. Uh, we sponsor 50 to 60 public conversations every semester, um, both on campus um, and at the San Marcos Public Library once a week. Uh, it's an open forum for lively exchange and the critical evaluation of diverse ideas. And one way to describe this uh, influential and valuable series is to quote one of the philosophers who work in American pragmatism and has been an ongoing inspiration. So in the words of John Dewey, we naturally associate democracy to be sure with freedom of action, but freedom of action without free capacity of thought behind it is only chaos. And I think that's a great way to start our dialogue series that we're doing today with Philosophy Mixed. Our topic today centering around uh, the body and culture. We're joined today by our guests to discuss how we are embodied by the myriad of intercultural exchanges and social meanings in our world today. I'm Flore Chevalier. Um, I am originally from France, um, and so my work brings in uh, French culture and French writers and theorists, um, but I focus mostly on experimental writing um, that's American and multicultural. Um, and I teach in the Department of English. Um, my, my books have focused on the body, uh, the ways in which corporal reality can become part of reading techniques and um, how the body can influence the way someone is shaping their narrative. Um, and so um, my first book is called The Body of Writing and it focuses on four writers who um, take on this kind of visually and structurally so that it becomes really fascinating. And my second book is a collection of interviews, um, Divergent Trajectories, that asks um, writers to think about innovation in the context of um, bringing the body into the work as well uh, in many ways. Um, And I'm currently teaching a class um, with the Honors College on um, the body and culture. So I I make that more multidisciplinary. uh, And we look at tattoos and body piercings and, you know, ways in which we have modified the body with our culture in the sciences or even thinking about control and discipline of the body. It's interesting you say control. Uh, My name is Caroline Nagy, and I am a writer and musician based out of Austin, Texas. Um, I'm kind of the outlier in this uh, presentation today just simply because I, I haven't dealt with philosophy in general but my the, the scope of my research includes a lot of philosophical overtones um, I have written a book entitled Texas Jailhouse Music uh, it came out last year um, and it's a popular book that's available um, online etc um, and uh, in that I discovered and, and researched deeply into the history of the Texas prison system in particular um, years ago there was a radio show on a 
a WBAP in um, Fort Worth. Uh, that radio show had millions of listeners. It was a clear channel radio show uh, and broadcast. Uh, this was during the New Deal era. So we're dealing with um, Texas prison system, notoriously um, harsh system uh, mm-hmm. uh, with uh, a lot of philosophical debates that could be uh, you know, discussed about it. Uh, and then also just um, how, how they treated the prisoners um, as performers of the radio show, how they describe them on the radio and so on. So um, I'm here to sort of throw in some, some ideas on the philosophy on how they dealt with these incarcerated bodies, um, how they described these inmates on the radio um, and the images they presented their own bodies when they pl- played out in the public, which they did. So we've got some a dichotomy of uh, and contrasting, um, tra- contrasting points of view from the Texas prison system. Perfect. Well, it's really great having y'all in uh, the studio here today to talk with us. Um, I guess to begin our dialogue, I I wanted to present this question. What role do our bodies play in the way that we communicate with each other? And what kind of impacts do our bodies have on the culture as a whole? I think one of the ways that um, our bodies uh, are important when we talk to each other is that we have a lot of nonverbal text. Um, And one thing that's been interesting to me, because I'm interested in literature as well, what do we do with the written text? And that's something that a lot of writers, um, to some extent, struggle with, because we do incorporate a lot of descriptions of bodies or a lot of thought about the body, if you think even about Shakespeare's sonnets and so on and so forth. But the the text itself is um, limited because it's not it's not mobile. I mean, it's written and it's it's there, and we can kind of make it flow and make it move in our mind, but we can't really make it an, an you know a body. <laughs> and so a lot of the writers that that I work on um, try to wrestle with this idea and make it part of their process and their product. Um, and so if you think, for instance, of a, of a, of a, uh, a series uh, that, I've, that I've worked on um, in the collection of interview that I, that I mentioned in my introduction, um, we have the author uh, Rene Gladman, uh, who has invented this kind of strange, fantastical uh, language. Um, uh, the, the series is uh, the Ravikians. And um, so people, in order to speak, have to bow and make all sorts of gestures, and they don't actually really use verbal language, but uh, the way that they communicate is this thing where, you know, if you're young, you can do backflips and say things that are a lot more extravagant than if you're older, but then if you're older, you might be a little more zen, and so you can actually hold the poses for a longer period. So, you know, those kinds of stories that make you rethink, okay, well, what do we do when we actually talk, what we take for granted? Um, And then I also look at books that kind of become bodies um, in terms of design. Um, Steve Tomasula's novel Vast tries to make the book a metaphor of the body. So the body is the, the book has the color of skin and it's tattooed and it's including, um, you know, the narrative is including a lot of research, some of which on prison or on discipline or on racial uh, decisions that we made and just kind of the background of how we have been making decisions as societies about birth control or, you know, just, okay, who do we try and control in terms of birth choices uh, and uh, just genetics and the evolutions of that. But the book itself mimics um, or represents very physically uh, with images and graphs and all that stuff, but it's still a novel with a story of a writer who is researching all of these things to contemplate whether or not getting a vasectomy. So when you read those kinds of books, you really have to think about the body and the ways in which, well, I'm holding this in my hand 
hands too. I have a body. I am using my brain to read this, but how does that make me read differently? Do I involve my body in this or do I think about my body? Is that enough? Um, should I make my body more part of my interaction? Should I think about the choices I make about birth control or, you know, my biases in terms of race or gender? Or... So I think, you know, it's interesting for me to think in the literary realm about the the, the way the body can be expressed, not just in the content of those books, but in their form as well. Because I think it helps us rethink a lot of what we take for granted in our daily interactions with the nonverbal stuff that we just, we know, but we don't really, we can't really constantly think about as we talk <laughs> to each other and communicate, mm -hmm. so. I think that's really interesting, especially because uh, storytelling uh, throughout centuries has always been uh, verbal storytelling handed down through generations and um, you know at, I, early on in human history things weren't really written down until um, written language was invented and and uh, it's really interesting how those authors are are trying to kind of recreate that in a, an actual physical book um, in the way that vast does and and the way that they reform the structure of their book around kind of turning it more into a body than it is a book so I think that's very intriguing. Um, uh, so Vass, you mentioned, um, mm -hmm. what are some of the other books that you have researched that kind of follow this format? Um, well, the body of work of Steve Tomasula is very involved in this. He mentioned this in, you know, in the interview in Divergent Trajectory. He says, I'm kind of more of a philosopher. I have this one idea about what the body can bring to writing, and that's about all I do. The Book of Portraiture uh, is another very visual book. He likes the idea of archaeology and how we have been represented ourselves. Um, and so if you look at the side of the book, it's a strata, just like an archaeological dig would look like. And each section has a section on how we've been thinking about representing the body so that the first part is more like the alphabet and how we've used language to, to do these self-portraits. And then there's a section you might enjoy that's on Freud because, you know, it's a way for us to think about um, the, you know, the body because of the subconscious and the unconscious and all that. And so there is a narrative there too, right? Because obviously there is a lot of bias in Freud's interpretations and his yes. choices of, <laughs> of people to work with and so on and so forth. Um, and then we end, and so we progress and we end the book with this bio artist who is trying to create art out of um, blood um, and so she wants to use the blood of the Christ and then herself and then another person that she's not sure uh, so it's it's kind of fascinating to just see how he's thinking about portraiture um, in a way that breaks down layers that we have inherited and we just maybe don't think about Frode as someone who is directly um, impacting us or or we might if we're you know a philosopher but it's just kind of part of the layers of portrayal that we frame ourselves as a society within, right? So as far as um, embodiment and literature, you know, those kind of seem like they, they don't really go hand in hand. Uh, and it is really interesting to see how these authors are, are kind of, you know, incorporating that into their work, um, trying to experiment with um, making the book embody kind of a, a human person in a way, mm -hmm. um, just in the way that they do the structure. Um, now, as far as uh, kind of the culture that we're in um, and other cultures as well, um, you know, the we are, are so attached to our, our bodies. We live, we literally live in our bodies. Um, what kind of impact does our culture have on those? And 
how are our bodies changed by our culture or impacted or you know, evolved with the culture that we live in? Well, um, I, I would probably address that from, um, from a, a, a penal point of view, um, just based on the research that I've done. Um, I would say uh, in the prison culture, for instance, um, from my understanding, many of the inmates, um, of course, feel they're physically incarcerated. They're physically behind bars. Their bodies are already under the control of another entity, so they already have that feeling um, inside them of being repressed, um, and, I, and it has tremendous impact on them emotionally, obviously. Um, so when they began to perform music, um, uh, there were several things at play here that helped them um, sort of free those bodies emotionally from um, from the physical repression. Um, if they were interested in music and they wanted to play music, um, then of course the learning of, of playing instruments, um, the freedom to rehearse and so on was, that was granted to them would allow them some freedom. I have found it interesting that prison culture actually has become such a large part of our society. Mm -hmm. um, the increase of, of um, of course, the people, the number of incarcerated people, uh, as well as the development of certain musical styles that have, um, uh, you know, brought it to our attention. Uh, at times, poten potentially, arguably, glorified um, the prison culture, um, and within the and and I think that that's adapted, and it's interesting to see uh, people who are free, physically free, adapting a bit of that um, philosophy that had developed behind bars. Um, they're embodying, in fact. Uh, a culture, I I sometimes wonder what would happen if they actually if some of the free world people were incarcerated and found you know the the physical, uh, you know the actuality of it if it's if it's different from how they perceived um, what it would be like. One thing I'm wondering is um, in terms of thinking about bodies and incarceration is were there particular have you found that there are particular genres of music or particular groups of prisoners who are more likely to uh, to want to form bands or given permission to form oh, bands? Oh, yes. Um, uh, interestingly, the formation of bands, um, it, uh, in the prison radio show from that I discuss in my book, uh, we, we discuss, uh, what's, what's interesting about it is that it is actually an integrated radio show. Um, they had inmates from all um, races and genders, et cetera. Um, so in that case, they presented everybody in a sort of you know, way, homogenous way to the to the to the listeners, so right. that, um, and in that instance, the prisoners were free to um, uh, free to perform, but they had they had to stay with certain genres that were mm. familiar to the audiences. Um, the African American quartet would have to sing hymns that were po popular in African American. The white inmates would not be approaching to sing that um, that type of music. They would be singing more popular songs. Um, jazz was an interesting, um, uh, the, the jazz genre was interesting from a prison point of view in this radio show historically because jazz was both a white and a black um, um, sort of genre at that time, different people. So we had um, both an African-American jazz quartet and a, and a just as they just said, a, our jazz quartet that they were white but they didn't say it it that was the interesting representation is their bodies actually formed um, the the color of their skin um, their color of their skin had an immense impact on how their bodies were represented on the radio where they you can't physically see them that was one of the interesting aspects yeah that's nice I was I was thinking about the um, the kind of assumptions about um, 
bodies and how they act in the world and how they might be present there, but also how, for you were talking about the way they work out in literature, right, and the actual form and structure of literary production itself, right? Mm -hmm. And so, um, so we're always bumping up against cultural assumptions about what are the appropriate forms and kinds of bodies to do certain kinds of things. Mm -hmm. um, and although these might seem like kind of disparate um, things we're talking about, they come back together around you know, how does the body get produced and how does it then get represented and reproduced um, yeah. by the culture mm -hmm. um, and how does it affect that culture. So that's, that's very interesting about the um, about the way the radio show played out. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, and in, in terms of norming and, you know, uh, uh, with gender or with race, uh, there, there are some really interesting works theoretically, but I also really enjoy books that will let us think about these ideas by expressing them and by also making us read differently. A good example of that about race would be The Bluest Eye that um, mm -hmm. I, I like to teach by Toni Morrison because the idea is this little girl who desperately wants to have blue eyes and that is and she's african-american um and that will solve all of her problems but then you also have these primers um that are extremely racist uh the dick and jen primers that frame mm -hmm. each of the chapters and that make you think about how if you have been normed in a society that teaches you literally how to read in a very racialized way then it's very difficult for you to escape you are not even aware of it you're just learning to read but obviously you're reading with images and with biases that are extremely racist and so this unescapability is going on in the novel in so many ways where you know you all the doors are closing in terms of gender roles or in terms of racial tensions uh, that you know amount to uh, just the breaking down of the of the book almost as the characters are breaking down i see you know the trauma just a big burden on this narrative where you just see, you just read this traumatized book that becomes kind of disrupted and unlinear and the narrators are shifting and you know, just the craziness of what it means for you to experience this as a person when all you long for is to have blue eyes and to be in a very oppressive culture because you, you, don't, you don't seem to have any other choice than to become kind of insane. Right. which is how the book ends, <laughs> right? So um, just just layers of these norming strategies that uh, occur in society that oppress immensely. Right. Yeah. 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 And, and historically speaking, in the era of um, this radio show, it began in 1938. Um, so we're looking at towards the end of the New Deal um, in moving into World War II. Uh, and at that point also, though, you're dealing with Texas, a very harsh prison system during the Jim Crow era. And so there's an inherent, um, like, for instance, on the radio show, they would describe the bodies of the inmates um, as African-American or, or other races, Mexican, if there were Mexican-American inmates on there. Um, and they would be very... Uh, perjurative and obviously, uh, you know, in, in that era, they would describe for the listening audience, you could tell there were two harmonica players. One was an African-American harmonica player. One was a, a white harmonica player. And the announcer would describe them in completely different ways to sort of paint a portrait for the audience, but the accepted, it was the norm for the audience to understand 
that um, when he says, you know, dusky Ace Johnson is coming up, is loping up to the microphone with a big grin, you're supposed to know that that is an African-American inmate. And they actually said that. They actually did that. So that, that description of their physical bodies um, soaked its way into the listening audience who accepted it as the norm because of the era that they lived in. Mm -hmm. um, but when I've re read, I, you know, I've accessed those transcriptions and I've read them word for word and they are just rife with it because it was inherent it was it, it was inherent in the era the social mm -hmm. con culture of the era at the time but it sure makes you wince when you look at it now yeah. you know the, the words themselves that had been like racialized uh-huh absolutely like, yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely dusky. They sing from darky land. They would say all this this wow. stuff, but then they would also, you know, and they did that with gender too. You mm -hmm. know, they would say they would, you know, um, dim, you know, diminutives for the women, mm -hmm. for the females, and say, you know, little our little blue and gold songbird, and so on. So it was just, and, and I think in one way they were trying to paint the the um, the radio show as a part of this progressive, you know. Re rehabilitative platform, but on the other hand, the inherent racism mm -hmm. is it in it, um, in it from a historical perspective really shows you, you wonder if anything like that could possibly happen in today's society. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. I was thinking about the relation between the, the production of the, the book or the, the literary product and, and the songs. And I, one thing I was wondering is, um, did the participants in the show get to write any of their own music or were they expected mostly to play songs that were already familiar to the audience and as you mentioned earlier um, to appropriate audiences given the kinds of bodies that were mm -hmm. being presented right um, yes because that's a kind of constraining or liberating possibility of this of being involved in music yes um, well yes the appropriate body saying the appropriate song to a general audience that was how they would do it so they would present it as so forward-thinking you know which it, it was in a certain essence um, but yeah I would uh, I'm sorry could you repeat just that well, last part sorry. yeah well I guess part of what part of part of what I was really wondering was did, did they have the freedom to write oh, their own songs yes, that's right. and if so what were the topics of the songs okay. they wrote um, so they generally speaking the format of the radio show they had a prison song library uh, in which they had like thousands and thousands of songs that they kept and you're when you're dealing with an inmate structure you're dealing with a fast turnover of bodies actually you know new pe people are released and then people come in and that was one of the reasons people were performing in the music in the prison bands in, in the first place is because they believed that to get the attention um, you had to be on good behavior to get in but if you got into the the prison bands then it was one step closer to early release and it, and it was successful um, so they were playing true liberation of their bodies um, as far as what they played there were some instances um, where they would perform their own music as in as a general rule they performed popular music of the time Okay. according to the, the ra their race and the type of music that they would play. You know, they would sing a certain popular blues song or a popular country and western song. Um, but uh, as, it, as it progressed, they also moved to patriotic songs, and that's mm -hmm. where some of the, ra the types of things, because we moved into World War II while the radio show was going on, they integrated a little bit for that. 
Um, so it was interesting, um, but there are there are definitely instances, and in one instance, I know one of the inmates, his name was Jack Purvis, he wrote the theme song for uh, for the prison radio show. He was a, a well-known jazz musician at the time and had played with some popular prison bands before he, he uh, you know, committed some, some bad acts and ended up in the prison system. Um, that was definitely the fun part about researching, um, is just learning about all of these different inmates. Once I had their names, you could really find that out and, and find out what they did. What they really did. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because part of what you're interested in, Flora, is the way that the authors are actually stretching the literary form, right? Mm -hmm. So working against the kinds of constraints of being said, here's what a book is supposed to look like, right? Because you found, here's mm -hmm. what a song is supposed to sound mm -hmm. like, right? And here are the songs to sing, whereas you're working with people who are trying to, to explode our preconceptions. Yeah. Yes, very much so. Yeah. Um, and I think it comes from this um, theoretical, I don't know that they're necessarily theoretically engaged in some of the criticism that's been going on or the philosophy mm -hmm. that's been mm -hmm. going on about you know, the ways in which we are gender norming, or I mean, I think feminists have written a lot about this, um, but I see it as a way to think about uh, the structures that we use to sometimes denounce things, but that we don't pay as much attention to because we're trying to denounce so much that we don't look at the words or the discourses that we package our resistance with. Right. And so what they're trying to do is to say, well, yeah, I want to say something about the fact that, you know, white culture has predominantly oppressed historically other cultures or so on and so forth, depending on what their goal is. But they're going to try and do it in a way that also insert a little bit of something different in the structure so that potentially you can, I don't know if it's rewiring your brain, because I find that to be a little extreme in terms of uh, formulating that. Mm -hmm. But it's, you know, it's this idea that some, some French thinkers, feminists specifically, were trying to play with, which is, you know, we just, we have, in, with, with the feminine and the masculine words in French or in Spanish, for instance, um, I, you know, I bring up that quite often, that a doctor can only be masculine and a secretary is going to be assumed to be feminine just because of the gender of the words themselves, which doesn't work maybe as well in English, but I think that we just have the same connotations and assumptions in this language. It might just not be that we have, you know, um, Auteur without uh, an e at the end being masculine in French, or you know the, the 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 other words in Spanish that you can we can potentially think about in Latin languages, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think they're just saying like, hey, look, like we are learning these words, so we assume as children that if you are going to be a doctor, you're not going to be a woman. Uh, and so they try to play with these structures so that we can try to think outside of that box. So mm -hmm. if you think about the narrative, tr typical narrative structure with rise of action and then a climax and a resolution, that um, in itself implies a certain mode of thinking in, mm -hmm. in terms of organizing your thought and being very goal-oriented. And you can even see it. Sometimes I shock my students because I bring up the sexual undertones of this that's very masculine. <laughs> and so it's not something that we usually talk about so much in the classroom because we just teach craft and short stories and stuff. But if you think about it, I mean, it is kind of in your face. Um, and so if you try to craft a story differently, then maybe it won't be read the same way. Will you be excluded because it's not going to be mainstream and you're not going to be able to market it? And if you do so, 
you know, then uh, are you trying to do something different with people's reactions? Mm -hmm. And so it's just interesting to think about the risks that you might be taking that way, but why you might want to be taking them. Right. You know? It's really yeah. just kind of like redeveloping the way that we read and, and the way our, our language structure works. Because, I mean, we, we made up language and we can rework it in any way that we want to, to develop a, a different meaning from it. And I think that's really interesting from that. Um, I, I wanted to clarify that um, on the radio show, it was very, um, it was under the thumb of the Texas Prison Board and the te so, so in those instances, the the com compositions of the inmates did not have an impact because they really didn't, they didn't uh, try to express um, their level of gender, you know, sexism or racism or even the fact that they were in prison, incarcerated, incarcerated yeah. and for freedom on the radio show. However, there are several huge instances of it occurring outside of the radio show, one of which was Lead Belly um, having comp um, been a popular, um, he was an inmate in, 19, uh, in the 1920s prior to when um, ethnomusicologist John Lomax discovered him at Angola a few years later. Um, but he actually constructed a song um, that led and played it for the governor, used his opportunities, manipulated um, manipulated the system of, of being an entertainment, and he said, I composed a song for you, and he, he did it in front of the governor um, and a, a, a whole group of accompanying women um, playing on their sympathies, and he, attempt, he, wrote, he wrote this song about being free, um, and it, it caused the governor to actually pardon him. Um, and in another instance that doesn't, um, that's not, you know, not with the radio show, but shows how um, com com personal compositions of the bodily body being oppressed can affect popular culture. Um, there was a songwriter in the prison system in the 1920s named Raymond Hall. He had met uh, a man named Jimmy Rogers. Jimmy Rogers is known as the father of country music mm -hmm. um, in the 1920s. And uh, they had met before he was incarcerated. Um, and then Rogers found out he was incarcerated and wrote to him and said, can you write me a prison song uh, the way that, and there was a very popular song at the time by Vernon Dahlhart called uh, The Prisoner's Song, and he wanted a really a song like that. He remembered that he had been in there, um, and so he, he wrote to him, and, and Hall ended up writing a number of songs for Jimmy Rogers, some of which became big hits, and Jimmy Rogers is a father of country music then, ultimately, he wrote, and he wrote 99 Years Blues, for instance, as an example of his physical incarceration. Um, it was about the case, about the murder, and what got him there, and how he is stuck there in prison forever. Um, Jimmy Rogers recorded that song, and as Jimmy Rogers' popularity increased, I mean, he was incredibly popular at that time. Um, it sort of formed the evolution for the prison and country music. You think about Johnny Cash and Merle Haggard and some of these other people that incorporate prison into country music popular culture. Um, that is, that's one direct uh, result of an incarcerated um, per prisoner in Texas in influencing popular culture through the writing of a song. Uh, for both of you, would you say that um, music or and uh, reading literature or writing literature, would you say that it is uh, liberatory, freeing, or is it most or is most of you know literature or music produced in conditions of you know market capitalism, you know marketing to uh, a specific group, not really with the intention of, of freeing or you know changing the way that we think or read or listen to music. Um, you know, is it just a distraction or, you know, is it for some of these books? You know, is it redeveloping the way that we think about music or literature? 
I think it depends on what you read. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's nice that we have uh, forums to talk about some books that may not challenge you and may kind of reinforce some of the gender roles if you think about all of the series and sagas that are very popular today and that are read by very young people. Um, I think if we can if we can bring attention to the fact that women constantly have the same kind of role in these books and men usually have the same kind of role and guess what their race is usually we can pretty much expect what they look like and so I think if you are able to be critical about these books and try to maybe you can enjoy them for your own pleasure and it's a way to escape the reality of your life and I think that's part of what it can mean to be happy for some people and I don't want to repress that <laughs> for them but I think it's interesting to think how you can be manipulated in having expectations about your own life and getting married at a certain age and doing a certain thing with your life when potentially you're just thinking through these steps because that's what you've been reading from a younger age. Um, so I'm not, I'm not going to say that it's fruitless to read or think about these books but I think for my own sake uh, I am more interested in seeing how reading differently can reshape my vision of, of things. But, you know, a lot of the books that I deal with are not as famous and don't sell as much. So I have to admit that you kind of, as a writer, you can, if you make that choice, marginalize yourself somewhat. Not that I want to belittle the what they're doing or the sense in itself by doing that. Um, you make that choice, and I think the people who are interested in those types of books will be somewhat political because of their investment and their willingness to just let go of the reading methods that they've integrated throughout life and just, for instance, read a short story that's <coughs> tattooed on people's bodies and they're just walking around so you can't really read the short story. <laughs> and some of them may die, you know, if you think of Skin by Shelley Jackson, you know, whose short story is written on on people who volunteer and become words and you know it's just it's different it's not like everybody is going to be willing to go that route but I think it's fascinating and just even summarizing it to you and anyone who's listening it's just captivating and just wow okay I never thought that could even exist and that I think is 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 a is a gift honestly (laughs) (laughs) you know that is actually something that has you know it's interesting I've heard that same phrase I didn't even think that could exist when it when people learn about prison bans in the Mm -hmm. Texas prison system. Mm -hmm. Um, For me personally, I'm sort of along the same lines with you um, as far as uh, researching out um, maybe books that are not as popular. That's how I um, relate to music. That's how, you know, and and my interest as a researcher, as a scholar, uh, is to seek out the stories that are not known. I don't, and, and the musical stories that are not known. So I seek music that not everybody is familiar with, and then I try and uncover the stories. Um, from a capitalism perspective, it doesn't really play um, play into my particular research because, um, well, a, a small amount. Uh, later in the, in the decades of the Texas prison system, they did produce record albums um, and released them at the rodeo, Texas Prison Rodeo, which was the, ven- uh, the long-serving venue for um, for the inmates, and they were sold as souvenirs. And I believe the music just went to the um, the money just went to the prison system. Um, but for the inmates, they're they're the playing of music. There's two things at, at play here. I think it's both. I think it's freeing, but I also think that it's a mind-numbing distraction, not for the inmates, but for the watching, for the people. 
because in the prison system at that time, these inmates they went out on tour. They I I, I like researched how they how where they played on certain days, and they would be out in Schulenburg one day, and then in Shreveport like two days later, and then they'd be back at the prison for the radio show. And so in essence, these inmates they they may have enjoyed the playing of the music, but the performing of the music was was placed upon them. They were essentially trotted out for public consumption um, uh, at these multiple venues all over the state and in neighboring states. Um, and so at one point I uncovered in my research, somebody had written to the Texas Prison Board, um, the inmates had written saying, can you please like lo lay off of the performances? We're numb, our fingers are torn to bits, yeah. we're tired, you know, and, and they were just, no, you know. <laughs> and, and so it's, it's really interesting to think about, you know, how um, the music that could be perceived as freeing and all-seeing, in essence, the... Mm -hmm. the um, they were still controlled by they, the system exactly, that was allowing them to the it. Exactly. So there's, there's a real um, dichotomy. And so you may enjoy the music, but it only goes so far. Mm -hmm. You know, right. yeah. mean, it may be freeing, especially as you learn. But then, if you're trotted out to play, you know, every day for a month, and you're just exhausted, mm -hmm. then you you certainly lose sight. And I think that happens for popular artists today. They burn out. They 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 exhaustion. I mean, when you're in demand, there comes a point where your body, your physical body, just can't handle it anymore. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Do you find that for the um, sort of mainstream audience who would go to these shows, what was the attraction for them? Was it sort of a way to maybe indirectly deal with their guilt or the otherness? Or was it more it was, sort it of was, the exotic? Well, oh, there, or was it just the music? Or Well, they were, we were dealing with a few things at that, that era. Um, one, you know, the New Deal era was very progressive. And so they were definitely bringing this good Samaritanism was a huge, um, was a huge uh, you know, thing in public culture and public consciousness. Um, so in the, in the radio show, they would ingratiate the inmates to the audience. They would go, do personal interviews with very carefully chosen inmates that were not going to, um, you know, upset the system or, or say something that would be, uh, you know, critical of the Texas prison system, but they would they would do that and the inmates then knew that they had to perform in a certain way for the radio uh, show to to go. They would talk about how sorry they were that they did this and they mm -hmm. would ex ex express this. And so in that way, by getting to know the, the inmates, especially the ones that were the, the ones that were groups, for instance, the women on the front cover of my book, the gory all-girls string band, they were immensely popular, all girls, um, you know, it was very, I mean, they were adorable to their public image. They had, they wore costumes as opposed to uniform, you know, prison uniforms, prison whites. Um, so the audience was very curious about these adorable dimpled girls and what on earth did she do to get in the, in, mm. into the prison? Mm. Um, so the radio show was one way to introduce the people to them. So they came to the performances. Um, a lot of the performances they did, at others, there were other acts there too. So people were there and they were part of the entertainment. Um, but they're also, they also put on a live show every week before the radio show where the public would attend and it would attract hundreds of people. It was a, a tour, popular tourist attraction in East Texas at the time is to go to the radio show at the prison. So it satisfied their curiosity to go behind prison walls. Mm -hmm. um, it became a thing to do because, and also we're talking about the era of Bonnie and Clyde and Texas Desperados. So they're 
there is a public fascination with it as well as a public um, drive for good Samaritanism where they want to go see these people in person. And then if they were fans of the radio show, they could see um, you know the gory girls in person, and they could, could witness them, and and so it was a they were fans also. You okay. know it was interesting. They but they had a they had a definite. I think there was definitely a public lurid curiosity of um, imprisoned people. One of the things about my book that's been interesting is it appeals to uh, several different major factors in American culture. People who are interested in penal culture, um, people who are interested in music. It's two very you know it's it's very different. Um, so I have these different audiences. Um, so for people who would be interested in, um, in the Texas prison system and the history of it, um, and the potential of the rehabilitative aspects. There's a really good uh, book by a scholar named Ethan Blue. He actually did his dissertation at the University of Texas in Austin. I think he teaches now in Australia. Um, it's called Doing Time in the Depression, mm -hmm. and it's an, it's an analysis of, um, of uh, Texas prisons in the New Deal era. He discusses the radio show. He discusses um, uh, uh, areas of gender, queer, uh, queerness, and and other aspects of the um, of the culture within the prison, uh, and then also discusses. He brings in. He did a lot of research on California as well. So he discusses both of those, which were very active, very some surprisingly similar. There are some differences. Systems during the uh, prison systems during the the 30s, 20s, 30s, 40s. Um, and another book that's just a great overall book about um, about the Texas prison system would be Texas Tough by Robert Perkinson. Um, I think that both both of those books provided uh, a lot of insight onto um, prisons um, and the the background and the politics. Uh, uh, both from an inmate perspective, politics about uh, building tenders and, and other, other aspects, um, as well as politics behind it, Texas Prison Board and the, and the state government. Um, but, uh, but yeah, and then as far as music, what was interesting about, th about the research that I, I found these transcriptions of the radio show itself, and so that provided um, all of the information about about uh, the announcers, how they announced the inmates. You know, you get a word, you're placed in it because you're placed right into the situation because you can read word for word. There really aren't record, there are no recordings of that radio station, so um, of that radio show at mm -hmm. that time. So it's been, um, you, you only, we only have that to go on. Uh, but they show the songs that they played. Um, from a musical perspective, you can really delve deeply into and analyze the types of songs and the themes, especially as patriotism uh, began to grow during World War One. So by analyzing the songs, that's a whole other research project in and of itself, um, where you can you can find the jazz songs that they were doing, the, the Western songs that they did Hawaiian music. Um, so uh, you can really uh, immerse yourself in the music of the era by looking through the transcripts, but also, um, you know, you can kind of Google. I, in the back of the book, uh, Texas Jailhouse Music, I placed a listening list where, um, if I if I didn't have, there are some there are some um, recordings of some of the inmates singing, just not on the radio show. Um, so I placed those there um, for people to go to. But also um, just people like the gory all girl string band. We didn't know what we don't know what they sounded like exactly, but there were all girl western swing string bands of the era that were uh, similar. That so I I placed videos and, and links to to their music so people can delve a little deeper into what this radio show would have sounded like. Well, I think that concludes uh, Philosophy Mix for today. Thank you both for being here, uh, Caroline Yegi and uh, 
Dr. Flor Chevalier. Um, the Texas State Philosophy Dialogue Series continues this week with talks on hidden histories, and we will be supporting the exciting symposium happening on campus, Strange Fruit and Lemonade. Uh, for more details on these events, visit our website at the Texas State University events calendar. I also want to mention that every Wednesday through November 8th, the Philosophy Dialogue Series meets at the San Marcos Library for open philosophical dialogue between special guests and our San Marcos community. These dialogues are at 4.30 p.m., and once again, they are held on Wednesdays at the San Marcos Public Library. Uh, for details on these events as well, check out the dialogue schedule at the Texas State Philosophy Department website. And many thanks to Joanne Carson, director of the Philosophy Dialogue Series, and to our guest today again. Uh, thank you, Craig, for being here with us, and thank you to our listeners for joining us. Please get in touch with your comments. Join us on the Philosophy Facebook page. And this has been Philosophy Mixed on KTSW 89.9.